and welcome to our Humira Biosimilars edition of Data Monitor Healthcare's podcast. In this month's podcast, we'll be discussing the Humira Biosimilar landscape and delving into biosimilar pricing, market access, and taking a look at the future outlook for the biosimilar market, including legislative reforms that are currently in development in the US. First off, I'd like to introduce Data Monitor's immunology and information team, Pammy Spicer. Hi. Joseph Jacob. Hello. And Emma Willey. Hey, everyone. So, Joseph, can you just give us a brief overview of the biosimilar landscape? Why is there such interest around Humira? Of course. Uh, before I dive into the Humira biosimilar landscape, I think uh, we need to recall that Adalimumab biosimilars are not the first biosimilars in the US market. The first biosimilar was launched in 2015, which is Filgrastrum, and was used to treat neutropenia in chemo patients. Multiple biosimilars have launched since and covers a wide therapeutic area, including oncology, immunology, diabetes, and ophthalmology. Now, there wasn't much buzz about biosimilars then, but with Humira, it's a whole new field. Up until the launch of COVID vaccine, Humira was a stop-selling drug for almost a decade. The drug is already approved in over 10 indications and offers a huge opportunity for biosimilars when Humira's patent expired. Now, biosimilar adoption in the U.S. has been slow as compared to the EU, where biosimilar adoption is much higher. The central issue revolving around the late U.S. biosimilar adoption is related to patent disputes. AbbVie had obtained over 100 patents for Humira, with the patent for active ingredient actually expiring in 2016. The first Humira biosimilar, Amgen's Amjavita, was approved in 2016, but due to settlement agreements, could only launch in 2023. Now, although Amjavita did get a six-month exclusivity on the US market before other biosimilars hit the market. Additionally, the EU also has different interchangeability rules as compared to the US. However, these biosimilars offer a huge potential for savings in the healthcare industry by offering discounted and competitive pricing to the originator. As of now, nine biosimilars are available in the US, with Amgen's Amjavita launching in January, followed by the launch of Sandoz's Hyremos, Boringer's Siltezo, Organon's Hadlima, Coeris's Yusimri, Celtron's Uflyma, Bicon's Julio, Fresnesca Bizidacio in July, and most recently, Pfizer's Abrilada. The uptake of these biosimilars will depend on a number of factors, but the most important will revolve around pricing and contract negotiations leading to formulary placements. Additionally, US biosimilar launches will gain an advantage if interchangeability status is also issued. So there are 10 Humira biosimilars approved or under review in the US. Emma, what are some of the factors that differentiate one biosimilar from another? So interchangeability is a big one in the current U.S. climate, although there is some legislature uh, that we'll cover later that could impact how big of a player this factor ends up actually being in the U.S. Um, In the U.K., all biosimilars are considered interchangeable upon authorization, while at present the U.S. FDA requires a switching study with pharmacokinetic endpoints and a specific application for interchangeability. But I think the key point that gets overlooked a lot in discussions about whether or not the U.S. should follow suit and implement default interchangeability is that this designation is functionally different in the U.S. versus Europe. 
In Europe, interchangeability means that a physician can switch a patient from the reference product to a biosimilar and feel confident the patient will receive the same benefit, respond the same way as they did to the reference product. Uh, the physician prescribes a specific brand name, and then the pharmacy then you know, dutifully dispenses whatever product the physician specified. Um, in the U.S., however, interchangeability designation allows the pharmacy to substitute the approved interchangeable biosimilar regardless of what the physician has prescribed. So the rules regarding notification of the physician do vary based on state law, but it seems like most states do require that the pharmacy notify both the prescribing physician and the patient that a substitution has been made. So interchangeability designation could potentially give some of these drugs an edge since they wouldn't necessarily be relying on physicians prescribing that specific brand. Uh, rather, they'd need to negotiate favorable formulary placement in order to increase uptake. And then the PBM would push the pharmacy to dispense the preferred biosimilar. Which biosimilars have distinguished themselves from the rest of the pack? As of right now, only Stiltezo and Abrolata have been granted interchangeability by the FDA. However, both are only available in low concentration form. Uh, concentration is also a distinguishing factor since high concentration means a lower injection volume, which is more comfortable for patients. Only four of the biosimilars are available in high concentration strength, and those are Hiramaz, Hadlima, Euphima, and then AVTO2 by Alvotec, which has yet to be approved. Hadlima and Hiramaz are also available in low concentration formulas, and Amgen is developing a high concentration formula of Amgevita, um, which is currently only approved in low concentration format. As for interchangeability, there's a bit of a race going on to be the first high concentration biosimilar with interchangeability status. As the first low concentration formula, the FDA granted Soltezo one year of exclusivity, which started in July 2023. So the first high concentration version to achieve this status may receive a similar advantage. If all goes as planned, ABTO2 is on track to be granted high concentration interchangeability first, potentially as early as February 2024. A Hedlima decision is expected in Q2 or Q3 of 2024, and then you fly in Q4. Um, Amgen's high concentration development also includes an inter interchangeability study where data is expected before the end of 2023. I've heard that there were some roadblocks um, in the development of AVT02. Uh, what impact do you think this will have on the uptake of that particular biosimilar? So since September 2022, Alvotec has received three complete response letters from the FDA, all regarding manufacturing deficiencies at their Reykjavik facility. But this September, the FDA finally accepted the AVTO2 BLA and interchangeability application. The BASUPA date is set for February 2024, which is obviously solidly behind the other nine that are already available. However, I do think that an interchangeability designation could put this one on more solid ground as it will be the first high concentration formula with the approval, especially if the FDA does grant the same one year of exclusivity like it did for Soltezo. Assuming Albatech can negotiate with payers to get AVTO2 on formularies, being the only high concentration interchangeable Humira biosimilar could allow us to carve out some market share. And are there any other characteristics that differ between these biosimilars? Interchangeability and concentration really are the big ones here, aside from payer coverage, obviously. Uh, and those will be the things that are key in determining the success of these biosimilars. One point that likely won't make much difference in market share, but that patients in particular care about, is titrate content. 
citrate is a buffer that's found in many injectables, um, and it causes pain like stinging, burning at the injection site. Most Tumira biosimilars, along with the reference product itself, do have citrate-free versions available, but some of the low-concentration formulas do still contain citrate. There are also a few of them that are latex-free, like uh, Biocon's Julio and Spinius Pavi's Adacio, um, and that's helpful for patients with a latex allergy. Thanks for that, Emma. Um, Pami, are these factors also the most impactful in determining coverage of Humira biosimilars? No, not, not necessarily. I mean, despite all the discussion around interchangeability, uh, this landscape is really shifting to the point that even regulators are calling into question the utility of the interchangeability designation. So instead, preferred formulary placement is a primary driver in, in basically any drug success within the U.S. market, and Humira biosimilars are interesting, right, since so many have been launched at around the same time. So in order to achieve preferred formulary status next year and beyond, it, it really will likely come down to cost and the market share of these agents, right? So Emma mentioned concentration as a differentiator, and this will feed into market share as we track the highest utilization strengths. So we already know that the majority of the market uses the higher concentration Humira over low concentration. This is important since patients that would be moved to a biosimilar would expect to switch to a similar product um, with the same volume and dose, right? Now the three high concentration biosimilars currently on the market that Emma mentioned, these actually also reflect the three different pricing strategies, which is to say that one has a high discount to Humira, that is Hadlima. Celtrion has pursued a low discount approach with Euflima. And then there is a dual pricing strategy that is taken on by Hiramos. And among these, Hiramos with the dual pricing and approval for the most utilized high, but they also have low concentration, um, currently seems to have the broadest coverage on formularies. So this is um, Novartis and Sandoz's biosimilar. It's been selected to be covered by OptumRx and Express Scripts, and it's also been chosen to trial actually a novel commercial model, which has been put forth by CVS. So through its newly created Cordavis subsidiary, CVS will actually work directly with the manufacturers to bring biosimilars to the U.S. market. And this new model will be kicked off with Hiramos, <laughs> which Cordavis will co-commercialize and manufacture with Sandoz. So this is really a novel approach to biosimilars um, and just really further integrates this market vertically. But I mean, the dual, dual approaching, the dual pricing approach isn't really new, right? So we saw this approach with um, insulin biosimilars, and it's not necessarily guaranteed to work, though it does seem to cover your bases when it comes to pricing strategy. Um, I mean, you can look at Amgen's struggles. Although Amgevita was launched months ahead of its competitors, AbbVie has been able to maintain its co-preferred status and most of Humira's market volume, um, market share by volume. Now that said, the competition has driven pricing discounts in the reference product, leading to a 35% erosion for Humira, um, which made over 20 billion last year. And then next year we'll see another cut. So the overall Humira sales across indi across indications is predicted to be about 7 billion in 2024. So right now we are seeing Amgevita's impact, despite not seeing a massive shift in prescribing habits. And could you go into a bit more detail on how these low and high pricing strategies are working out? Right. So um, Coherus and Organon have signaled aggressive pricing for Usimri and Hadlima, which is enabling coverage decisions, uh, though their inability to compete on rebates means these drugs will be relegated to later lines on national formularies, and that will ultimately 
um, you know, these formularies will only choose a handful of preferred biosimilars. So we've heard maybe three. So I talked about dual pricing, and this is really driven by the complexity of the U.S. healthcare market and the role of PBMs, which are intended to drive cost savings, but they really do kind of muddy the waters in terms of transparency and the supply-demand dynamic. And this is why, despite having a low price, uptake of USIMRI is expected to be slow. Um, Coherus did, though, make headlines when they launched USIMRI because of their partnership with the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, um, and that offers a steep dis discount of over 90% to members. However, like I said, without a high-priced option, you know, the high-priced option that would lead to decent rebates to traditional PBMs that control the majority of the market, we have heard that this retail strategy is really not expected to gain significant market share because it's unlikely that insured patients would pay hundreds of dollars out of pocket for USIMRI when an alternative version would be covered, right? And though Coherus is working with specialty pharmacy partners like Superior Biologics to expand coverage, USIMRI might just be mostly restricted to certain individuals like patients with special specialty coinsurance who are likely to hit their deductible. Now, Organon's strategy includes targeting markets not covered by major PBM national preferred formularies, and that may also yield low returns for Hadlima. So Organon has paved a path to access for patients covered by OptumRx outside of the national formulary listing directly through and directly through um, insurer United Healthcare. And likewise, to ensure Cigna and contracted PBM Prime Therapeutics, Organon has opened up options to access patients covered by Express Scripts. However, as I said, it is preferred access that will most likely drive usage, and simply being included on formularies may not translate into market success. So, Organon has also announced that they are targeting Medicaid enrollees through managed care organizations like Centene. Now, on the flip side, we have drugs launched at low wholesale acquisition cost discount so to Humira, so at a high list price. And these include Cytezo, Euflima, and Idacio. And these are still struggling to compete with Humira because, as I mentioned, it's still provided as a preferred option. So this year, OptumRx announced that it will place Boeing's, um, it's placed Boeing's Cytezlo on its formulary with Humira, and it was also added to Express Scripts' list of preferred drugs. Um, Cytezlo in particular may have been chosen since it was the only biosimilar in the Humira market with phase three trials across multiple physician specialties. So these include a trial in rheumatoid arthritis for rheumatologists, plaque psoriasis for dermatologists, and Crohn's disease for gastroenterologists. Um, and then Fresnius Cabney, Cabby manufactures Idacio and has highlighted the issuance of a permanent Q code for the biosimilar um, by CMS. So Q codes are reimbursement codes used to facilitate billing for Medicare Part D drugs, Part B drugs that are administered by a physician. So we can say that low pricing strategies aren't working out well, as, you, as well as you might think, because they can't get their drugs onto major formularies, while high price strategies are struggling to compete with Humira, as long as the reference drug is still co-preferred. That makes sense. And in your opinion, are there other factors that also might drive uptake of one biosimilar over another? Yeah, since these drugs are newer to the market, um, whether or not the manufacturer has an established production and distribution capability may also play a role in formulary placement and access decisions. And additionally, 
Um, if a company produces several biosimilars or biologics approved in multiple indications, then the manufacturer may have more negotiating leverage when it comes to portfolio contracting. So regardless, I mean, the uptake of these products is going to be gradual. The formularies will not necessarily be static, meaning that a drug doesn't have that doesn't have immediate access may still be added as a preferred option down the line and vice versa. Preferred options can be ousted over the years. Um, but if Humira can maintain a co-preferred status, then it will do well with retaining a good chunk of market volume despite erosion from pricing, though policies prioritizing biosimilars may upend that legacy sooner. Thanks, Pami. And Joseph, can you comment on the legislative reforms currently in development in the US regarding biosimilars? So, um, there are three major legislative bills or reforms that have been introduced or rather reintroduced into the US government. Uh, the Red Tape Elimination Act was introduced by Senator Mike Lee in November 2022 and uh, reintroduced in July this year. The bill addresses the issue of interchangeability of biosimilars and states that all biosimilars upon approval will be deemed interchangeable. We have already seen in the case of Simerly last year, which is a biosimilar to Ranibizumab, was granted interchangeability designation without any switching studies. As Emma mentioned previously, a product with an interchangeability designation can be distributed by pharmacists in place of a reference product or another biological product subject to state laws. Now, this would get rid of the current requirement of switching studies, thereby saving millions of dollars. Now, this bill would not affect state laws, which actually create their own, own laws regarding biosimilar interchangeability, but would give the states an accurate understanding of the nature of interchangeability. Uh, in recent news, we also saw that the FDA has officially recommended the removal of interchangeability designation for biosimilars from the product label. <clears throat> Patients and physicians both have had confusing encounters with biosimilars and interchangeable biosimilars, as in uh, they find it difficult to distinguish between those two. Now, this is a step towards making it easier for patients and physicians alike and reducing confusion between them. This should improve healthcare professionals' confidence in prescribing both biosimilars as well as interchangeable biosimilars. This uh, recommendation does not remove the interchangeability tag from the drugs that have conducted switching trials, but what it does is remove the interchangeability tag from the product label, which is easily accessible to both patients and physicians, and include it in the FDA's purple book. Um, and the second uh, legislative reform of the act is the Senate Finance Committee's Modernizing and Ensuring PBM Accountability Act or the MEPA MEPA Act. The bill is introduced to bring more transparency, accountability and competition to PBM practices in the supply chain. And the bill is set to document the frequency and cost of healthcare plans favoring higher priced branded medicines over their generic or biosimilar equivalents. Additionally, the Finance Committee will also require justification from PBMs if branded drugs are preferred over their generic or biosimilar counterparts, or even if they are in a different formulary tier. Now, the bill also aims to target PBMs from deriving income or remunerations from covered Medicare Part D based on manufacturer's price for the drug, and a bona fide service fee for the services by the PBM is to be provided instead as remuneration. Now, these provisions are expected to take effect starting in plan year 2026. And this again is expected to potentially save billions of dollars in 
patient savings and also maybe reduce insurance scoping. Uh, the last one is regarding uh, the IRA or the Inflation Reduction Act. And, um, well, with over 80% of the US population already believing that drug prices are too high, a major reform like the IRA has been on the cards for quite some time. Under the IRA, biologics will be eligible for pricing negotiations before biosimilar entry. If Medicare can negotiate a significantly lower price for a given product, biosimilars in the pipeline will carry a lower value proposition than expected. These pricing negotiations erode the value of a potential biosimilar entrant. Additionally, there is also a disparity between biologics and small molecules. Now, Medicare can negotiate drug price for biologics 13 years after reaching the market, compared to small molecules where drug prices can be negotiated after just nine years. First to market biosimilars will then have added benefits that may deter other biosimilars from competing. The IRA exempts negotiation for biologics which potentially have biosimilar entry two years from being selected for negotiation. Now, this could lead to a change in the way biologics manufacturers look to elongate marketing potential. Currently, patent exclusivity and patent rights are sought after by manufacturers to propagate market reach. Under the IRA, this could change if biosimilars are expected in two years, leading to the reference product not being considered under price negotiations. The IRA does stipulate that biologic and reference manufacturers cannot enter into an agreement dictating market launch tactics. Now, with the IRA, there is a possibility of a fundamental shift in the market behavior between branded and generic manufacturers, but overall could negatively impact biosimilars. And just to conclude, um, what do you think is the outlook on Humira and its biosimilars? Well, uh, some of the KOLs, key opinion leaders that we spoke to, find biosimilars to be the future of cost-effective therapies, while others fear it might lead to a decrease in novel drug development. Considering the current landscape and future trends, we do expect biosimilars to gain a foothold in the market, not just for Humira, but also for other branded medications. As Emma and Pammy already mentioned, formulary placing will play a crucial role in market uptake. And we are already seeing a number of Humira biosimilars being well positioned in key formularies. Over the next 10 years, we forecast approximately a 60% drop in Humira market shares across the indications. Additionally, we do consider that the future success and longevity of Humira and its biosimilars will depend on key legislative reforms such as the IRA, the MEPA, and the Red Tape Elimination Act. Thanks for that, Joseph. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, that concludes this month's podcast. Goodbye.